0: Hey, podcast listener, are you a hacker, techie, nerd, investor, founder, or ever wanted to get into this world? Join TechCrunch for its annual Disrupt Conference in San Francisco, featuring the luminaries who aren't only making the rules in technology, but changing the game. Get a first look at startups disrupting machine learning, mobility, healthcare, robotics, and more, and hear from the world's leading investors and innovators. Visit TechCrunch.com and use promo code SPREAKER. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R for an exclusive discount.
1: Welcome to Leverage Masters, airing weekly on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern and on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Leverage Masters hosts Jack Humphrey and Gina Gaudio-Graves discuss leverage strategy with guest leveragists. Be sure to subscribe to Leverage Masters in your favorite podcatcher for great tips and case studies on using leverage to achieve your biggest goals much faster.
2: Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Leverage Masters. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Grace, and along with my co-host and all-around partner in crime, Jack Humphrey. We are the co-founders of theLeverages.com and Divizio.com. We have a fantastic show lined up for you guys today. You know, Jack, I was just mentioning to our guest, Rich Goldstein, that I'm a graduate of Notre Dame Law School, and I really always wanted to go into patent law, but unfortunately my undergrad degree is a BA, and you can't get admitted to the patent bar unless you've got a bachelor of science so unless I wanted to go back and get another bachelor's degree there wasn't a lot that I could do to practice patent law so I ended up practicing environmental and toxic tort litigation and coverage then went on to get into the car accident which prevented me from teaching law at my alma mater of Notre Dame and instead I became an entrepreneur and I've never looked back and missed it at all. So I'm really looking forward to having Rich with us today.
3: Thank you. And uh, awesome. uh Yeah, I don't know if that was my cue or um, you no, still have some cute. intro you want to do.
1: That's <laughs> cute. Let
3: me
1: <laughs> let me warm you up first, Rich. I'll warm you up first. <laughs> So today we have Rich Goldstein, a registered U.S. patent attorney. He's founded, he founded the IP boutique firm Goldstein Patent Law nearly two decades ago. Rich's firm specializes in patent prosecution, representing small businesses, startups, and inventors in their quest to obtain patent protection. To date, he has obtained nearly 2,000 patents for his clients. Rich, thanks so much for being on Leverage Masters.
3: Absolutely. It's great to be here.
2: And, Jack, I hope it's okay, but I'm probably (laughs) going to jump in a lot more than I usually do, just because I love this topic so much.
3: Please do. (laughs) Fantastic. So, um, So, actually, there's a lot
1: more that I just wanted to get your, uh, we ask everybody at the top of every show, uh, what's really burning in your belly and getting you
3: out of bed these days? What's your big
1: mission right now?
3: Um, well, my big mission is what we're doing right now. I, um, for, for this year, my goal has been to get on more stages, more podcasts, more webinars, radio shows. It's really about getting the message out about IP, uh, because a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand how it works. And because of that, they get stuck whenever anything IP comes up. And uh so I'm just I'm just really passionate about helping people understand it and just to see that it's not that complicated.
0: What there is it, uh, Our audience,
2: what, our oh, audience ahead, is Gina. perfect for you, Rich, because they are entrepreneurs. We have everything from people who are coaches and mentors and infopreneurs that could really benefit from some knowledge about copyright trademark law. And we also have people who are software developers, whether they're creating downloadable software or SaaS platforms or something like our platform, Divizio. And they should really be a little bit more knowledgeable about all different types of IP. So I hope we can cover all of the topics of IP, not just patents, if that's okay.
3: Um, sure. I mean, uh, I, I mostly specialize in patents and trademarks, but we can we can touch on whatever it is that you, uh, you think would be interesting to your audience.
2: So let's assume that our audience knows nothing at all about IP and start mm-hmm. with bare basics. What is a patent? What is a copyright? What is a trademark? And what's the difference?
3: Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where a lot of the confusion happens is that people – say something like, hey, that's a great idea for a book, you should patent it, or um, that's a great slogan for your business, you should copyright it. And those phrases, as you'll see in a moment, just re- reflects a mismatch between the type of protection and the type of subject matter of what you're protecting. So, so the important thing to know about patents, trademarks, and copyrights is that they each have a type of thing that they protect. So in the case of copyright, it's about artistic expression. So it's about the artistic expression that might be found in a book, a movie, a play, a song, things of that nature. Um, when it comes to trademarks, it's about, a, um, it's about a slogan or a brand name or something that, that consumers use to identify a product in the marketplace. And when it comes to patents, it has to do with a physical product or a process. Um, and uh, usually there is something functionally different about that product or the process or the or an app or a piece of software that results in the patent. Um, and there's also design patents that protect uh, the appearance of an object, like the shape of a, a water bottle or the um, you know, the, the shape of uh, an automobile. Uh, dashboard like that could be a design patent so the point is that that the thing that separates these three main areas is the type of thing that it's covering
2: and when is it appropriate to start thinking about protecting the intellectual property that you're creating
3: well I think the appropriate time is when when you see value in protecting it so uh, I mean speaking of leverage Uh, there's a lot of leverage that can be gained in IP. And usually when you're seeking leverage, you're seeking to gain it over something where there's an upside, where there's something that's worthwhile, where you see the opportunity to do a little something that will have a big impact. So if you see the potential in your product, then that's the time that you should begin to think about protecting it. On the other hand, if it's just the inkling of an idea – and kind of what you have so far isn't even that valuable yet. It's kind of like, hey, I think it would be great to have a solution to this problem, and I'm thinking maybe it's something like this. Then maybe that's too early. But once you, you hit that eureka moment where you say, hey, I've got a great solution. This is what's going to work. Or I've got a great brand name, and this is what I'm I'm going to start promoting for my business, this brand name. That's when there's value and that's when it's appropriate to really do something about protection.
2: I'm working with a client right now that's developing a piece of software that really is going to be very novel, much uh, much of a game changer in several different industries. And I suggested to him that he should go out and get a provisional patent the minute he's ready to start selling his software. And he's like, huh, why would I do that? So provisional patent, what is that, and how does that differ from
3: an actual patent? Okay, cool. Well, let's talk about the why you would do that for a moment. So first of all, um, th- there's one major, major trap that people fall into when they have a, a product that, that costs them everything. I've seen it over and over again throughout my career, and that is people will will say, hey, I've got this great product, I'm going to launch it, and then if things go well, then I'll get a patent. And the problem is, if you don't do the patent quickly enough, you lose the right. And that's not the same as that that someone else might steal your idea and get their own patent. We're not talking about that. We're saying even if no one else steals your idea, steals your invention, copies what you're doing, the very act of putting something out there publicly – will stop you from getting a patent it will if you haven't yet applied for a patent it will it will you you'll lose the rights through most of the world to get a patent and in the u s what it does is it starts a one year grace period where uh, if a year has gone by and you haven't yet applied for a patent, then you'll lose the rights in the u s so what happens and this is the big trap is that people come to me that are marketing their product it's going really well and they come to me and say hey i've been selling this product now for a couple of years and it's just going too well and i'm afraid that someone's going to start copying it so we need to get a patent on it and i have to give them the unhappy news that it's just too late two years have gone by it's it's too late to ever apply for a patent in fact no one could get a patent on it it's what's called public domain at that point so That's the reason why you want to file a patent as soon as possible. I mean, aside from the obvious that someone might steal your idea, but if you don't do it in a timely manner, then you can lose all of your rights. So there's that. Now let's talk about provisional patent applications for a second. So a provisional patent application is a somewhat less formal application that you could file that effectively establishes your priority toward the patent. So you file your provisional application. It, it gets your foot in the door at the patent office so that if someone else filed a patent application after you, you'd be ahead of them. And our system is now a first-to-file system, which means all of those myths about putting something in an envelope and mailing it to yourself, I mean, well, it, it never worked before, but now there's a good reason that I, that I can give that it doesn't work, which is that it's not about if you have it in a sealed envelope explaining your invention, it's a matter of who files first. So since it's first to file, who gets their application in matters most, and filing a provisional application is a way to get your application in first. Um, And there's one major caveat, though, for doing provisional applications. You see, when you file a provisional, it's not reviewed by the government they don't go over it all they do is they receive it and they give you a filing receipt for when it was filed but the priority that it's giving you is only as good as it is well written and i'll say that again the priority that you get from this provisional is only as good as the job that you did writing the provisional so uh, writing a patent application and explaining an idea to the standards of the patent office is not an easy feat um, the problem is that people often take this um, this provisional mechanism, and they and what they do is is and they realize it's not going to be reviewed, and so they just put together a, a short description, they file it as a provisional, they get their filing receipt, and what they end up with is a false sense of security, because as far as they know, their patent filed, their patent pending, but if they ever need to rely on that description that they half-heartedly put together, um, it's not going to help them uh, at all. So provisional is a great suggestion for someone like your friend who has something that they're about to put on the market. It's like, yes, let's get an application filed. Um, But if it's not well written, it's not going to help them at all. That's that's the other thing that, that they should know.
2: And why would you want to file a provisional instead of a full-blown patent application?
3: Well, because there are certain um, portions of the provisional that are not required, um, then it's less work to prepare, um, so it tends to be less expensive. So if you do a provisional the right way and you have it prepared by, an, by a, a patent attorney, uh, then often it will cost around half of what the utility application would, would cost, uh, and that's because they're doing about half the work. So the advantage of doing the provisional is that it's a way to get your foot in the door um, with less expenditure, uh, and also it gives you some space to, you know, knowing that your priority is established, get out there, talk to people, talk to people that can help you develop it further. and. Uh, and knowing that you could do so safely because you have your priority established at the patent office, but yet with the provisional you have a year to then finish it up and do the full utility patent applications. So it gives you some space to get out there and, and, and learn some things, learn about the market, uh, talk to people who know some things about it, and get some prototypes built, perhaps, and, um, and then perhaps use that information, use all the things you've learned by being out there in the world safely and, and use that in the final version that goes into your utility patent application. So, so, so another reason then is to give you some space to develop it further.
2: And the other thing in my client's case is he could afford to file a provisional patent right now, but until he's generating some revenue, he's probably not going to have the money to do the full application Which is why I suggested that he use the provisional application as something that gives him the space to do exactly what you just described. Go get some feedback, develop the product even further, generate a little bit of revenue with it, and then go ahead and file for the full application. So, Jack, I'll take it back to you. Those are the biggies I wanted to make sure we covered right up front. Are you muted, Jack? Well, where did Jack go?
3: Well, while oh, waiting for Jack, um, there's something I wanted to touch on about um, what you said in the opening about being uh, uh, wanting to be a patent lawyer uh, and ending up being an entrepreneur. It's kind of the, the reverse for me, uh, where I, uh, uh, I was studying electrical engineering in college, um, I was uh, an entrepreneur. I had a, a business that I created in college, and uh, I decided that I wanted to change my major to business because I knew that really what I loved was business, and I wanted to go into business. And um, someone suggested to me patent law, so I ended up going to law school for for patent law, and now I work with entrepreneurs. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur myself in that I have my own business for the last 25 years, and And uh, But it's it's kind of funny in that, uh, like I said, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I ended up being a patent lawyer first.
2: That's too funny. (laughs) That really is awesome. (laughs) And that is one of the things that drew me to a legal career is the whole idea of business and the law. I loved both of them equally, so it really did give me an opportunity to play around in both fields.
3: Yeah, that's great. Can you hear me now? Now
2: yes. I can hear you.
1: Good. Yeah, I got uh, muted. The machine does not like me today. The machine is against my talking. Uh, <laughs> that is funny. You guys kind of crossed crossed each other over. I was actually um, dating uh, uh, someone through law school. <laughs> I was uh, one of those Uh, spousal support units for a a law student who was going crazy with law review and everything else. and uh, So living through that was eye-opening, and I was really struck by how little uh, they prepare you for in terms of business. I mean, I guess you learn that. I guess they expect you to learn that um, when you work for a firm. And you just kind of pick things up as you go along, but at some point if you're gonna be partner <laughs> or start your own firm, um I noticed that law school absolutely prepares you not at all for business in any way
3: whatsoever. <laughs> at least yeah, what I didn't it used to. Yeah, absolutely right about that. As a matter of fact, that is one of my pet interest areas is law practice management. And uh I uh w- when when uh when i'm I'm tasked to when I'm, I'm invited by legal conferences to come speak it's not typically about patent law typically it's about something related to uh to leadership sales or marketing so within the hmm. uh, within the lawyer world uh i'm I'm known for for those topics and talking about um, how um how a law firm can market themselves um talking about leadership and and uh and teams, and and how to uh, have people be satisfied in, in, the, in the workplace. Um, also, sales, one of my favorite topics. So most attorneys are just very afraid of sales. They think one of the things they think is that, hey, I became a lawyer so I never have to sell or do something like that. Um, they think yeah. of it as blue collar, um, when you know. Often I've done uh, you know talks that are all about having them see sales as a way to better serve their client because sales is a way to get into relationship with people and to better find out what they need and how to serve that. And so it's just interesting uh, what you're saying about them, not preparing people uh, in this area. It's absolutely true. And um, so, uh, you know, a lot of times, Lawyers find themselves in that position where they they get into a law firm, maybe for the first 10 years they just put their head down and they they're doing their work, but then at a certain point they're ready to be made into partner. But once they're partner, they're expected to generate business. But no one taught them yeah. how to generate yeah. business. No one taught them how to sell. No one taught them how to uh, how to build that network and and get the message out of what they do. And so it, it's a very common situation, very common problem that you hit on there. Which I think I some so of the uh, commonly understood when stereotypes I, that lawyers yeah. have. When of I
2: was still so practicing, business. Jack. That's where I came up with my phrase that you hear me repeat all the time: serve and strategically monetize. That came out of my law pr- practice. Back then, I was on the fast track to becoming partner, and sales was not my thing, but I really figured out that if you just serve to the best of your ability, you're not going to generate any new business. If you serve and strategically monetize and tie the two together, that's when the magic really happens, and I use that and have used that all the years I've been working with entrepreneurs, because it's, it's no different in any business. It's about serve and strategically monetize.
3: Absolutely. It's about finding where the value is, and you monetize where the value So as you're serving and you realize what it is that people need, um, that should be a cue for how you monetize what you do. It could be a cue for what, um, how you niche yourself or what clients you approach or when you're talking to certain clients how you or how you might already know the type of thing that would be valuable to them. so I wholeheartedly agree with that.
1: Yeah, it really does just get down to what is uh, you know basic to every business. and uh, you know it's it's really weird. i mean it's it's almost like being a lawyer, being a plumber, being a there are a lot of businesses that don't identify with their profession as tightly. They identify as a you know product producer uh, service provider of some sort, and I think a lot of pressure gets put on professions like lawyers to be a lawyer. I am a lawyer, yep. you know that kind of thing and and it kind of confuses them and makes them feel a little bit apart from everybody else in business, but that's not really true like you said it's it's a value of the service and then going out and representing that uh, in the best way you can with service and like Gina said, strategically monetizing is a is the same thing that really every business has to do.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And and there's there's a trap in that. And um, so the the trap is in seeking to be uh, as competent as you can in the profession that you are in, what, whatever that is. And it could be being a lawyer, it could be being a doctor, it could be just about anything. But that's a that's a refuge. That's a place to hide for many people. Um, and uh, actually, if anyone is interested, uh, there's an article that I wrote for the American Bar Association. You can Google it. Uh, it's called Being a Great Lawyer Isn't Enough. Um, and it just talks about that very syndrome that you're talking about where people can, uh, can just focus all their attention on the lawyering, on learning more, mm-hmm. uh, and, and realize that there are other important skills to being a great lawyer which includes the skills in in working with your client and working with your team and in getting your message out about what you do. In other words, leadership, sales, and marketing. So, yeah.
1: What do do you do when you're talking to people about how they can be seen or put themselves in the best light out there? Do you ever talk to them about, uh, you know, the service component and having people talk more about, of course you're a lawyer. And then when you're a lawyer, everybody assumes you have these core competencies really is important to list all of those out. Like they do in commercials in, in, mm-hmm. in the rest of the world. It's, it's more important that people talk about you at all. And in a good way, like this person is really doing this r- really great stuff. They're a lawyer. And then they just go into what they're doing. Like, how they're helping people and all of that. It seems like that's probably the best way for people who are scared to death of marketing to feel a lot less like
3: their marketing. Do you talk about
1: stuff like that?
3: Yeah, well, I think you pointed to an important distinction there between uh, competency and commitment. And I think uh, to a large extent, when whenever a consumer is judging uh, anyone that they're going to work with, it usually comes down to uh, – to some extent, competency and to some extent commitment. So, in other words, do they know what they're doing? Competency, and are they on my team? Commitment. Um, so, and what I've noticed is that consumers tend to to spend most of, put most of their attention on one or the other. Some people are very competency oriented. Some people very much focus on on do you know what you're doing, um, and they do that for themselves too. That's usually a good cue about what type of person um, they're looking for is what type of person they are those competency focused individuals will heavily also focus on learning and being the best and and uh, and making sure that they know what they're talking about right but then yeah. um, a lot of other people are heavily focused on on commitment do are you on my team? Will you be there for me when it hits the fan uh, and uh, you know how how do I know that I can count on you? Are you going to return my phone calls? And it's very interesting how um, both consumers uh, end up strongly in one camp or the other, and also practitioners end up in one camp or another. They, some, and a lot of lawyers feel that the path toward, toward better serving their clients is to just know what they're doing and to do good work, um, whereas, you know, they, they neglect things that the clients are really looking for, like the return phone call, or just giving them a sense that they're there no matter which direction the case goes, that they're there for them. So um, I'd say a lot of times in terms of, of, of steering lawyers towards shifting their marketing message, it's often toward those commitment aspects towards showing them the way in which they care for and serve their clients because they're so used to habitually just talking about their qualifications and achievements um, when, for a good deal of the consumers, that's not what would, would have them trust the attorney. That's not what would have them become a client.
1: No. You guys are so conditioned to achievements um, you know it starts very, very early in in law school, and you probably were attracted to it uh you know people you know who typically go into law school who are attracted to it in a large part because they're the type of personality who has already been achieving an awful lot before that you know they were in they were class president types they were student government they did all kinds of stuff and then law- law school kind of seemed to come naturally, and right away they're like law review. And then you've got to get published and you've got to all these things. And then what spits out the other end of school is a website. And this is where my competency comes in is uh, I have had lots and lots of uh, la- law firm, law firm clients. And, and it just is a giant resume typically. And when it comes to advising them on marketing and things, because I see the same thing all the time. They only see their website. And they see their competition's website, but they look at it through their lens. They're not seeing it the way I do. And I'm not held down by the things I don't know, like the lawyering stuff. I don't mm-hmm. know a lot about the content. So I'm always just looking at the, the makeup of it. And you've got sites that look an awful lot like um, a resume, sort of. And there's lots and lots of accomplishments there. And I'm like, you guys, you guys are in the same town. You, you could go – you know, bloody each other up all you want, but, you know, you're fighting over a limited pool. I worked with somebody else in this region and you guys are both doing the same kind of law. So you got to stand out some other way. And that seems to be a theme that, uh, that you've run up against, that you've verified for me (laughs) that you run Mm -hmm. up against. And it's interesting that that's what you speak about to, um, uh, in, in in the conferences that you go to.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. And uh, it is very interesting that, um, and it is fairly endemic, like you said. Uh, sa- same thing with, with doctors. Um, any, I, I think mm-hmm. any profession that requires a high level of competency, you'll tend to find people that are, uh, that are 90% focused on that. Um, and, uh, and you will find some people that are, that are more balanced in their approach, but yes, you, you you definitely find that, and then it has all its pitfalls because of it.
1: Well, less our, vis- our visitors, our listeners, uh, think that we're not talking about their kind of stuff. We actually are, because you're giving us an opportunity to talk about something um, from a completely different angle, from a different profession, and mm-hmm. one that's kind of noted uh, for these types of things we've been talking about. And so this applies to everyone, really. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about those people who found a good middle ground. What, what does that look like in their world? Because now people listening have a kind of an idea of what it's like, you know, for lawyers, for law firms to and, and the, the lack of training that they get in just business management and marketing and things like that. So it actually offers us the ability to go back a little bit further than we normally do and not assume anything. And then just kind of talk about what is that, it factor? When you see a lawyer or a law firm that really has it down or you've advised them and gotten them to that level, what does that look like that's different from you know, the
3: resume style approach and the accomplishment style approach? Okay. Well, I guess if we just back out of it a little bit from, from lawyers, as you're saying, and, and have it be something that applies to everyone in every business. So, I mean, the mm-hmm. first principle is, is that with awareness comes choice, right? So, before before we opened this conversation and distinguished competency from commitment, um, there it was just a big cloud of like well, different behavior, different marketing messages. So now through this lens of of that there are things and there are marketing messages and there are behavior that's solidly about competency or knowing what you knowing how to do what you're doing. and then that there are things that are solidly about commitment, about relationship, about uh, about the way in which you um, you serve people and honor your commitment to them, so once you begin to see the the distinction there, now you have choice. Now you have a choice to focus your marketing message in one direction or another. Now you have choice in your sales conversations to go in one direction or another. and um, uh, let me give you an example let 's talk about sales for a moment. I mean, do you talk about sales much on your on your program? Absolutely, all the time. Okay, great. So imagine you're having a sales conversation with someone. Um, and uh, so uh, imagine that, um, okay, well, let, let's say that I'm, uh, it's in the legal context. So I'm a lawyer, and, uh, and I have a client who's asking me a question, this, and they're in the oil and gas business. And so they ask a simple question. They say, do, do you have other clients in the oil and gas business? So now, there are two very different ways to answer this question. And I'll show you in a second how it has 100% to do, how you answer it has 100% to do with whether that person seems to be coming from a competency orientation or a commitment orientation. Okay, so first of all, if you answer the question, um, do you have any other clients that are oil companies, uh, if you answer it as, Uh, well, yes, we have um, these five major companies. Well, you're speaking directly to the competency client because the competency client wants to know that you have experience, you're in the business, you you have other clients, and therefore you must know what you're doing. So if you are thinking like that um, in that competency orientation, then you'll give that answer. And you know what? For a client who is also thinking toward competency, that's the right answer. But there's a different answer you can give, and that answer may be um, you know, to the question of, do you have other oil and gas company clients? You, you might say, no, you'll be our only one. Now, to the commitment-oriented client, that's the right answer, because they want to know hmm. that you care about them. They want to know that your allegiance is going to be toward them. They want to know that your attention isn't going to be divided between all your other oil and gas clients. So for someone who really is looking for that champion, that person who's going to be on their side, they don't want to you know, know that you have five other clients in the same industry. You know, they want to know that you're going to be their champion. So clearly, um, both of those answers would work for one and not well, and not well at all for the other. So you really got to know who you're talking to before you whip out one of those answers. Exactly. You got to know who you're talking to, and you listen for it. You listen for the questions. If most of their questions seem to be about qualifications, you're dealing with a competency person. If most of the questions have to do with commitment, like, for example, questions about, so um, you travel a lot. Um, when, you're, when you're out of the office, um, who's, who's around to handle things for you? Or are you easy to reach um, can, I, can I have your personal, if we're working together, can I have your personal email address or your, your cell phone number? See, like those types of questions are really pointing towards someone who's looking for um, that commitment, for someone who's going to be reachable on their team, uh, have their attention on them. So if you begin to notice those types of trends, it will shape the types of answers that you give because you'll know, you'll better know what they're looking for.
1: Yeah, so that's why so many marketers started taking to just hitting it right on the nose and doing all kinds of creative surveying and quizzes and things like that as part of their funnels to, uh, to learn about people. One of the things that we had gotten really, really um, complicated in our approach to our markets at one point when the Internet was still kind of young. We're like, you know, let's just try to design something and guess everything that our customers or clients might want and then put that into our funnels and then we started guessing wrong of course right off the bat and we weren't getting the kind of results that we wanted and somebody along the way I don't know who it was um, I know a lot of people who addressed it once it became a really huge issue with all kinds of survey software and ways to do quizzes and things like that and find out more about your people they just said why don't we just ask them exactly what they want and then go create that and make it and then go sell it to them. It was their idea in the first place. So like that was the, that's the most radical. You're not going to do that with the law profession or, or other things, but in the information marketing area, that was the really the right way to go. And we, for a couple of years, really talked a lot about, man, we should have thought of this a long time ago. <laughs> it <Like, laughs> right. was really easy. Selling people exactly what they asked for is yeah. brilliant.
3: Well, yes, absolutely. And so when it comes to informational marketing, when it comes to um, to to transmitting a marketing message to many, uh, it pays to survey and to ask those questions and to really gather those trends and what the client is looking for um, and when it's one on one then it it just means ask more questions than than then provide solutions without knowing what the client wants so Really, I mean, a lot of times people think that, that the way to sell is by pitching, pitching what they think the client wants, but really the way to sell is by asking questions and discovering the value, uh, discovering where the leverage point is. Uh, I mean, the more you dive into into their world and finding out where the leverage point is, uh, then the more value you can create.
2: Yeah.
1: I accidentally learned that lesson a long time ago, and it really has served me well all my life, but I didn't know what I was learning when it was happening. I was a um, canvasser for a nonprofit organization in uh, the D.C. area. So we would go knock on doors at dinner time uh, in Chevy Chase, Maryland and Bethesda and places that were really, you know, nice neighborhoods and everything else and interrupt people at the most crucial time of their day when they're getting back with their families and and have to fundraise, have to actually come away from that door with a check. Hmm. And the training that we got was, I don't know if it was just a bunch of savants getting together or somebody's dad was a salesman or something or how this happened. But when we first went out, we talked a lot. And we said, here's what the organization's about. Here's all this stuff and all this stuff. And then somebody came in and did a training and said, what you need to do is start with an assumptive clause. I'm sure you've heard such and such, right?" And then the the people will always be too embarrassed. And we were like, no way, this is not going to work. They said, watch, do it. Just do it at a door. They will be too embarrassed. Even if they don't know what you're talking about, they're not going to say they don't. They're going to nod and go, yeah, I've heard of that. And then you just keep right on going. Let them off the hook really quick so they don't get scared that you're going to make them answer (laughs) anything. And then start asking questions. And I'm like, this is not going to work. And I'm sitting here as a guy who is bringing back like 30 bucks a day in donations or something telling the guy what I think is going to work when clearly my stuff wasn't working. And, but he pushed us, he kept pushing us. And, and we started coming back with really record numbers. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of us were doing it and we couldn't believe it. It was scary as heck because we were, give, it felt to me like we were giving the control over to, in this case, the customer and that, you know, we felt more in control when we were able to direct the discussion where we wanted it to go but they don't always want it to go the way that you think. And once we started loosening up on that, it was the exact kind of outcome that you're talking about. It was really big, you know, $1,500 checks at a time uh, for the cause and all this kind of stuff. And one time I sat in somebody's uh, really, really nice mansion-style house and had, um, you know, had snacks and they fed me and everything, and they just wanted to talk. And we ended up like 90% of the time – Um, just talking about all kinds of different things uh, somewhat loosely related to what the organization did and why I was there. And at the end of the night, they were like, so they get their checkbook out. I remember it just like it happened yesterday. So uh, what's the name of the group again and how, you know, and then just write a $1,500 check. I was like, what? That was more than I was making for like two or three months previous, Um, you know, and they were all $5 and $30 donations. So yeah. I really learned that lesson early. I had no idea what I was learning and how important that would become over my career, but it really works. It's maybe a little yeah. scary though for people.
3: Yeah, definitely. And and I think it it's there's there's another principle at play there that's that's working, and that is risk. So if you're um if you're asking someone to take a risk, like believe in you, you're someone who just showed up at their door um, believe in the organization, believe that it 's the right way to to spend their money to do some good um, that their money is going to go to a a, a good um, use and, and it 's going to be worthwhile for them to donate so you 're asking them to take a risk so uh, what you need to do is also risk if you 're controlling the conversation you 're not risking anything like you said it 's kind of like you feel out of control that you' you're, you're, you're throwing it into their court, and then it can go anywhere. So basically what you're doing there is you're taking a risk and inviting them to take a risk as well. Um, and, uh, you know, if you ask a question and that you don't know the answer to and you just let it hang there in thin air, you're taking a risk. And so that's kind of what opens the door for them to take the risk as well. Yeah. Well, entrepreneurs
1: are a crazy bunch, so they uh, are (laughs) more open to risk automatically by definition than uh, others who would find such exercises to be paralyzing. Um, I guess that's what makes us nuts. And you're automatically signing up to be an entrepreneur if you're going into uh, the legal profession, in my opinion, from everything that I've seen and all the people I've worked with. And, I mean, at some point you are going to be – asking entrepreneurial questions about your future and where you go from here. And so uh, it's, it's, we're a crazy bunch.
3: <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the thing about risk there too with entrepreneurs is that um, everyone has their own appetite for risk and they have their own realms in which they'll take a risk. So, entrepreneurs, so certain entrepreneurs, for example, might be willing to uh, to risk their money or at risk losing their money, but they might not be willing to risk looking silly in a conversation, right? Yeah. So the the risk um, in terms of in sales often is the risk of having the other person not like us because of what we said, or the risk of having this look at us in the face of a question we just asked, as if we don't like, uh, why would you ask such a question? So uh, so entrepreneurs can take risks of, of of many types, but often each entrepreneur will have their own appetite for risk, which will shape the types of uh, the, the type of things and and realms in which they'll they 'll take them um, and so sales often is one in which people tend to retreat the most and do what's what tends to be safe, whereas often the thing that would serve the sale and serve the customer's risk. Like, for example, example dealing with an objection. Um, so you have a, a potential customer who's expressed in nine different ways how important it would be for them to buy your product or service, but yet then an objection comes up. And um, not having the time or something like that, uh, not having um, the ability to schedule the, that first appointment on the spot. So if you're afraid to take the risk, you won't ask them a question about whether that really matters to them. So, like, you've, you've heard nine ways in which this is critically important for them. That It would really be valuable for them to move forward, but yet they've come up with this objection, and and a lot of people are afraid to challenge people on what they say. And so they feel, oh, if they're saying no, I need to respect that. But if they're saying yes in nine ways and no in one, Maybe it would be more in service of the customer for you to just take a step back with them and take a look at that now and say, oh, wait a second. So you're saying that this is something that would be, would be um, groundbreaking for your business, something that would be critical, about the, help you get the thing that you've always wanted, but yet you're wondering whether you can schedule this appointment for tomorrow because you're too busy? So um, it's that type mm-hmm. of risk which serves the client and serves your interest. And a lot of times, uh, you know, entrepreneurs are afraid of sales because they're afraid of doing just that. Um, But, you know, when people play around with that type of risk, what they get to discover often is that's what builds a relationship, is when you're able to step into someone's world and ask a question that might not be comfortable but yet might serve that person, that's when you really build relationship.
1: And when you say play around with a certain kind of risk, you know, I've watched people, you know, uh, decide to step out there in some way that's uncomfortable to them, to take a risk. And they do it, and, they, and then they go really quickly, one time, I did it, it didn't work. And when you say play around with it, I want to expound on that. That means like, okay, do it and fall on your face. And then do it again, optimize it, See if you can play around with it, you know, because a lot of people do that. They'll say, well, I did that, and it didn't work. And um, Then I have to ask them, how, how many times did you do it? In what way did you do it? And it's usually not enough. It's usually what, like they tried something once, and it really embarrassed them, or they really felt insecure or uh, too exposed. And I'm like, man, your, your success is right around that next, you know, risk, you know, right around that corner that you never took that turn because you said, that's it, no more. But I did take the risk, and you're trying to take credit for it now. You're a risky take risk-taking person. I'm like, not quite yet, right?
3: Yep. Well, yes, and it, it, it's the it's a matter of how much they really stepped over that line. So, like, they they have this imagine they have this line drawn in the sand, um, and basically, there's certain behavior that they that they just won't do. Right? There are certain things they won't do. They won't put themselves out there in a certain way. They won't step up on a stage, whatever it is, because it just feels like death on the other side. It feels like it's, that's just a terrible idea. It's not just like, hey, that might sting a little bit. It's like that would, that would kill. That would be awful. And so yeah. they have that line that they dare never cross. And you know, the truth is everything they want in their life is on the other side of that line. Uh, mm mm-hmm. So, so in terms of experimenting with it or playing around with it, is you have to really be open to, uh, to doing it and also open to the real consequences of doing it. In other words, most of the time that people do it and if they fail, they discover that it actually wasn't as bad to fail as they imagined. So the other person didn't look at them like, like they didn't know how to answer your question. But it wasn't like death, like you expected it to be. So also having the experience of, of dipping your toe on the other side of the line and realizing it's not as bad as you thought is the type of experience that you can build on and, um, and can encourage you to, to do that more. Um, because otherwise what we're doing and the, the, the behavior you described before is just collecting evidence for the things that we already know. It's like we expect it to be bad, and so we we just give a half-hearted attempt, and like, see, it was bad. I knew it, and that's why, as you say, they won't try it again. So you have to just really do it from a place of openness and with your eyes open uh, to what's really going on, as opposed to all the imagined um, consequences from that behavior. Now,
1: for those who have been listening for. A while or maybe even years, um, you, you probably have noticed one of the patterns in this show, and that is there are always people uh, who come on who say things uh, like Rich just said, and it challenges everybody, and that's a good thing. And what I think is the biggest leverage point of all of this is that when I look around and I see that all these different demonstrations of human nature and everybody's conferring on this show constantly in one way or another, no matter what their background is or what they're here to talk about, they're always confirming that there are just commonalities in human nature that if only you gamify it, and that's the way I look at it, wait, nobody's willing to do this or very few people are willing to do this. And then all I want is on the other side of that line of doing this then I don't care how much it scares me to do it because all I have to do is what other people are unwilling to do. And then you look at why are they unwilling to do it? If you listen to different shows about success and and sales and and all that kind of stuff, you start to learn that what you just said earlier, um, you find that a lot of the things that you're scared to death of, once you get to the other side of them, weren't that big of a deal to begin with. And then then you're like, wait a minute, what if this is one of those things? It probably is one of those things. And yet, most of my competitors are really scared to death to do it this is my this is my leverage point, right? absolutely, yeah, I always think that that stuff's fun because you really don't have to get all of your energy for that big next step you want if you wanted to get on you know and be judged wholesale by having a YouTube channel and telling people you know, (laughs) about what you do in an interesting way or uh, being a personality all of a sudden and you've never thought of doing that, but you see nobody else is or you see other people are doing it, but you could do it differently, your personality is different, and you take that risk to do it, uh, that's, that's a leverage point. For me, I've always done business where I watch everybody, what they're doing in whatever industry I'm in, and I run the other direction. I look at whatever they're not paying attention to, and I'm like, that's where I want to go because I don't even have any competition over there. And they see it all hard or or scary or something, and and I'm like, no, that's great. They don't want to go this way.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Jack, that's the highest leverage point. A mindset shift is the highest leverage point. Um, It it affects all of your behavior, all of your opportunities. Um, So if you could shift just one of those things about yourself, or if someone could shift those if, I mean, the first step is awareness. First, you have to realize that there's a line, and whatever that line is. And if you begin to look at your life, you might begin to see that you've designed your life in a certain way to avoid a certain type of thing. Whatever that thing is, you've, you've really created your entire life to do that. Once you can begin to see, like, what that type of thing is, uh, then you have an opportunity for a huge breakthrough. Um, and that comes through a mindset shift. So once you – you know, if you can shift your mindset and make it safe to do those things that you dare not do, there's a whole nother world on the other side of that line. Yeah.
1: Well, it's kind of ironic that a lot of people come into entrepreneurialism with uh, starting a business, starting a service, whatever, corporate America, just to escape – Uh, the walls and the boxes that you're put in there, you know, working for someone else and there's all these rules and everything else. And a lot of people end up building a little miniature corporate America in their own business. They put up their own walls because they felt comfortable. It's like when people get out of jail and they feel really, really exposed because there's nothing between them and all these other people that the freedom itself that they wanted so badly becomes somewhat of a problem for them because, They're used to the walls. They're used to the restrictions and the rules and everything else. And uh, opening people up to that is awesome. I'm sure that you do that without really putting it on the nose like that. With a lot of people, it's like, wait a minute, you are your own lawyer now. You are in your own practice. You can do this any way that you want, that you see fit, that works for you and works for your clients and, you know, uh,
3: isn't like everybody else. Yeah, it's it's empowerment. It's empowering people. Uh, I mean, often that they will believe that there's the reason that they're not doing a certain thing is because they don't know how, but usually not knowing how is the last reason that they're not doing it. It's usually Mm -hmm. some, some type of safety or, or perceived unsafety. That's the reason they're not doing the things that, that would serve them the most. Yeah.
1: So I want to switch a little bit to, uh what people can do to find out more about what it's like to work with you? Um, we'll <laughs> yeah, we kind of went on a big house.
3: tangent here off from patents, huh?
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, so but I like that because
1: I really that's what we do is we kind of dig in a direction that people aren't thinking we're probably going to go. but I mean, the, Gina started us off absolutely right, which is talking about you know what people need to know because everybody who listens to this show has some interest in what you do. They just don't know it or yeah. they need help with this or they're calling a trademark a patent and versa or whatever, but or yeah. they just don't understand IP. And um, a lot of the people on here have intellectual property that could be protected and, and you yeah. know, so they're going to need to know, and this is not something that typically comes up on shows like this. We always talk about what you and I just talked about and not right. enough about what it is that you do and how you can help people. So let's talk a little bit about that. How do people okay. – find out more about the world that you live in and how it can help them as entrepreneurs, no matter
3: what industry they're in. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, people often look at the patent process as being expensive, as being costly. And in, in my view, the biggest cost of the patent process is people's misinformation about patents. That's what has people spend money at the wrong times and for the wrong reasons. Um, if you are curious about patents and how it works, and you want to make sure that you spend money in the right way, I have a series of six videos on my website that explain how the process works. So if they go to go, if you go to GoldsteinPatentLaw.com, um, there are videos there. Actually, GoldsteinPatentLaw.com/videos will get you directly there. There's six videos that, in a half hour, really explain it all. Um, and so that's what I recommend for someone who wants to learn about the process. I also, um, uh, because I've been out there educating entrepreneurs about inventors, I'm sorry, educating entrepreneurs about patents, the American Bar Association asked me to write a book explaining in plain English how it all works. And uh, so I wrote the ABA Consumer Guide to Obtaining a Patent. Uh, and you can, you can find that on Amazon. It's less than 20 bucks, And um, – Basically, it, uh, it's about a four-hour read, and if you read this book, it'll help you to not make the, the biggest mistakes that most people make when they're, when they're going for a patent or they're pursuing a product. Uh, I mean, it'll help you understand um, when to do a patent, like when is the right time to do it, and when is the wrong time to even try. So that's, uh, you know, those are the two main ways to learn about the process. And um, if you want to explore whether it's a a match to work with me and work with my firm on a patent project, then um, you can contact my office through the website again, goldsteinpatentlaw.com. And and you can set up to talk to someone on my team, and, and basically they'll explore with you whether it's a match for us to work together.
1: Actually, you guys, I just found an Easter egg. Regard everything that Rich just said. That was all good. That was fine. But I found an Easter egg. It's called patent bookcom and you can actually get a chapter of the book. Is this is this accurate, Rich? Should I be sharing this? Is this
3: like yes, this insider? Yes, uh, Absolutely. If you if you want to ch- um, check out the book and and get the the first chapter, which which really takes head on the question of uh, of uh, of why you would get a patent. So what would be a good reason and what would be a bad reason? for applying for a patent. So to begin to sort out whether it's something you even need to care about. Um, you can get that in that free download from patent-book.com.
1: And you'll see a testimony at the top of a friend of ours, uh, Frank Kern. So our worlds are colliding in a big way here, Rich. This is, this is awesome. I did not expect to see Frank's name at the top
3: of the, uh, at the, top of the page. That's awesome. Yep. Yep. Frank said, uh, finally a book that walks you through the patent process in plain English. So, um, yeah, I mean, you talk about our worlds colliding. Actually, I'm in your world quite a bit. Um, I, I hang out with marketers, and uh, I'm, I'm involved in different groups, and I'm in um, mastermind groups, and uh, I go to marketing um, conferences. Like, um, those are, you know, marketing and patents are my two main worlds. Awesome. Well, that's bona fide people. He, he said all the right things. He's got the right
1: pedigree, so this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jack. All right. Well, Rich, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today on Leverage Masters. Uh, I I want to talk to you some more. Maybe some more. We can totally geek out on the marketing stuff uh, the next time. And then oh, uh, I'd love uh, I will leave. I will leave the legalities and everything to Gina. She knows how to carry a conversation on that stuff really well. <laughs>
2: Cool. Well, I will this definitely great. Thanks be so much sending for my me. client over. I will definitely be sending my clients over to check out the videos and the book and reach out to the firm because they really do need some help with this provisional patent in the next couple of months. I mean, like it couldn't have been more perfectly timed for you to be on the show.
3: Great, that's that's awesome.
2: Well, thank you so much for being here, and we will be back same time, same place next week for another episode of Leverage Masters.
0: At Colorado State University Global Campus, online education isn't another thing we do. It's all we do. Get an interactive education that's built for working adults like you and that employers demand. Explore your options at csuglobal.edu. Hey, podcast listener. Are you a hacker, techie, nerd, investor, founder, or ever wanted to get into this world? Join TechCrunch for its annual Disrupt Conference in San Francisco, featuring the luminaries who aren't only making the rules in technology, but changing the game. Get a first look at startups disrupting machine learning, mobility, healthcare, robotics, and more, and hear from the world's leading investors and innovators. Visit TechCrunch.com and use promo code SPREAKER. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R for an exclusive discount.